Today's scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Six, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste with, without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oath, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right. Okay, good morning, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Um, so we're continuing, to, uh, we're continuing today on my series on Isaiah. And today I'm going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I would like to try and share this uh, PowerPoint. Let me see if I can do it. So, um, can someone just let me share that my screen? Uh, yeah, one that. second. Yeah. Okay, you can try now. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah. So... Oh, wrong one. Hang on, that's not the one. <laughs> Hang on. Are you seeing anything? We see the whole PowerPoint um, app. Oh, yeah, okay. You're seeing something, are you? Okay, because I don't see. So let me work out how do I see what I'm sharing. <laughs> okay. So you are seeing the PowerPoint thing, yeah? The entire app, yeah, with all the slides on the side as well. Okay, so how do I... Ah, oh, I see. So I need to do this then. Sorry, technology is not my forte. Okay. Yep, that's right. All right, good. Okay, so... Um, all right, now... Um, every generation has some kind of existential threat or fear to deal with. So these last two years, of course, we've been... You know, it's all been about the pandemic. But before that, we were worried about other things, you know, climate change, maybe global financial crisis, 
terrorism you know it was the big fear from 20 years ago 9-11 until we almost forgot about it uh, from the pandemic but recently we've been reminded again with Afghanistan and before that we had communism we had the atomic bomb even before that there were two world wars there was a great depression and so forth and so forth so there's always been something humanity has been worried about now in Isaiah's day uh, he was called to ministry as a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died, which was around 740 BC. And you can read about Uzziah uh, in 2 Chronicles 26 or in 2 Kings 15, where he has another name called Azariah. Now, Uzziah was one of the great kings of Judah, at least from a human perspective. During his reign, he was very successful in battle. He had a great army. Israel's territory was the greatest in the reign of Solomon, but Uzziah managed to reclaim much of the territory Solomon had ruled over in the south at least. The north was a different kingdom. And Uzziah was not just good at warfare, he was good at building infrastructure, fostering agriculture, and under him the nation of Judah grew rich and comfortable. And he reigned for a very long time, 52 years. Uh, Not as long as Queen Elizabeth, 70 years almost, but still a very long reign a very powerful and peaceful and prosperous reign. So when Uzziah died, it was the end of an era truly, a time of great uncertainty for the nation of Israel. And into this time of great uncertainty, God commissions Isaiah to be his prophet and to be his mouthpiece. So let's delve into Isaiah chapter 6. Let's see if I can do this. All right, so... Uh, We're looking at verses 1 to 4, the Lord's holiness and sovereignty. And as we heard, uh, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he saw the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And each one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah had this vision. We don't know if it was a heavenly vision, an earthly vision, it doesn't matter. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw God's brightness and glory and his clothing, so to speak. God was sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And just the skirt of his robe was enough to fill the temple. That's how great and exalted God is. And above God are the seraphim. Uh, this is the only time in the Bible, by the way, where seraphim are mentioned. Seraphim literally means burning ones. And they were flying above the throne of God. So their function is not so much to be God's bodyguards. God doesn't need bodyguards, but they're there to worship God and continually call attention to God's holiness greatness and glory and even though they are bright fiery beings they cover their faces before God as God's glory is too bright for even them to gaze upon directly they cover their feet in an expression of modesty and humility before God and their constant refrain is holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory now what Why the threefold holy? Well, I believe it's one of the Old Testament hints of God, the Trinity, 
It's not a proof, it's just a hint. And what does holy mean? It expresses how much separation there is between God and humanity. Indeed, all of creation. God is exalted far above us. He is transcendent. He dwells in unapproachable light. He alone is morally pure. God is the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of armies, the Almighty God, the victorious and conquering Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. And this tells us that although God is far exalted above us, and He's utterly different to us, yet He's not aloof and He's not remote from us. He's present on earth, among us, intimately involved in all of His creation, and His glory fills the whole earth. Or to put it in theological language, God is not only transcendent, but also imminent. Now in Exodus, we read that when the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai to hear God speak, they were terrified by the mountain shaking and smoke everywhere and the thunder and lightning and trumpet blast. And likewise here, God's presence is accompanied by the temple shaking and being filled with smoke. It's truly a scene of great awe. Nowadays, we trivialize uh, superlative words so that they don't really hold any superlative meaning anymore. So we use the word awesome to, in a casual way so that we're left with no words to describe things that are truly awesome. Now, this is a truly awesome scene. In the true sense of the word, it's a terrifying, awe-inspiring scene for any mortal creature. Now, we human beings, we're used to uh, being at the center of our world, our pressing concerns are always about ourselves. We care first and foremost about our own survival, our own health, our own comfort, our own livelihoods, our own desires, our likes, our dislikes. But today we see with Isaiah a vision of the true state of affairs in this world. We see God in the center, not ourselves. He is the highly exalted one the glorious one. He is sitting on the throne, completely in control of the world's affairs. On the human level, there's always churning upheaval and uncertainty. It was the case in Isaiah's time when Uzziah died. It's no different today. And yet God is serenely unperturbed by the machinations of human history. Nothing takes him by surprise. In fact, all things come to pass uh, which come to pass are ordained by God. So we need to realign our perspective from a me-centered view to a God-centered view. In this pandemic, we all feel a great upheaval, like the rug's been pulled from under our feet. All the familiarity and the certainty we once took for granted, now gone. And we feel a complete loss of control. The coronavirus came from nowhere to suddenly disrupt our lives massively. Now we need to see the pandemic through Christian eyes. Not just the pandemic, actually all of life. Later on in the book of Isaiah, we hear God say this. Isaiah 45. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Scripture always affirms that God is sovereign in all things. That includes things both good and bad. We see, for example, in Job's sufferings and supremely in Jesus' death, 
that God is always in control, even of evil. Now, some Christians want to absolve God of responsibility for evil by saying that bad things happen outside God's control, which then effectively restricts God's power and sovereignty. Now, scripture is not so timid to say that, but equally, Scripture never says that God is the direct cause of evil or that he is ever to blame for evil. In other words, God sovereignly controls all good and evil, but he's never morally culpable for evil and he never commits evil. Now, God never decrees evil for evil's sake. As his creatures, we don't sit in judgment over God's actions, but we do know from Scripture that when God decrees evil, it must always have a good purpose ultimately. Now, whatever evil happens to those of us who are in Christ, we can be assured that these things can never separate us from the love of God in Christ, as it says in Romans chapter 8. And once we see things from this heavenly perspective, knowing that God is always on the throne in heaven in complete control of everything, we can stop being fearful. We can rest assured that everything that happens to us happens by his loving will. We need not fear death, whether by COVID or some other cause. God determines when we die and how we die. And even death cannot separate us from the love of God. Now, there are Christians today in Afghanistan with every expectation of seeing Jesus face to face in, at any time in the coming days. They fully expect to be shot or beheaded for their faith in Christ. Our faith ought to be like that. Even in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, in all the turmoil around the world, God is supremely in control of every little detail. And that is the God that Isaiah saw in the year of Uzziah's death, high and exalted, and that is still the same God that we worship today. The next uh, section in this chapter is Isaiah's confession, cleansing, and commissioning, which is verses 5 to 8. Now, every time in the Bible when a human being is confronted by a vision of God, the common response is dread and sheer terror, because God is so highly exalted above us and so different and so morally pure compared to us, we cannot help but shrink back in awe and fear. And as we go about our daily lives, we hardly think about our sin, we shrug it off, we minimize it, we make excuses for it. But as soon as we enter into God's presence, the first thing that we think about is our sin, how unclean and how filthy we are. And that is Isaiah's experience. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knows that for a sinner to set eyes on the heavenly king, the Lord of hosts, that is certain death. Woe is me. That's a cry of dismay, something like, I'm done for. It feels the heart-sinking terror and shock that comes when you realize that you are going to eternal punishment. I am lost, he said. The specific sin that he focuses on here is the sin of the lips that is, sins of speech. Isaiah uh, condemned many sins of Israel in the first five chapters. We looked at chapter 1 last time. Uh, so the sins of Israel include sins of speech such as, for example, in chapter 1 verse 15, 
uh, it says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide your eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So that's making a show of being religious. The speech sounds good. There are many prayers, but it's all insincere because their hands are full of blood. Or chapter 3, verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Or chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, uh, the people of Israel say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So in, in fact, they are taunting God and challenging God. And in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So wrong speech also includes calling things that are good evil and calling things that are evil good. That is to deliberately overturn God's assessment of right and wrong. Now Israel does not condemn, uh, Isaiah does not condemn Israel from his high horse as though he was superior to them, but he identifies with Israel. He's one of them. He's one of those that he condemns. His lips are also unclean, just like Israel's. And because of his uncleanness, the fact that he had looked upon God's glory meant certain death and damnation. And the same judgment must therefore apply to the whole nation of Israel because they are a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's experience is therefore a paradigm for the whole nation. Isaiah and Israel both stand lost and judged. What are your lips and my lips like? Uh, are they unclean too? The first step in being reconciled to God is to have self-awareness of our sin and to confess them to God. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God takes the initiative here. He meets the sinner at his point of need, literally. It is the lips which are unclean, so the burning coal brought by the seraphim touches the lips to cleanse them. And this is a symbol of atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is what God does to reconcile sinners to himself. Human beings are alienated and separated from God because of their sin. And this separation from God means eternal death and punishment. There's nothing that we can do to bridge this chasm between us and God. God has to provide atonement. There's nothing that we can do on our part. And the only prerequisite here is the need to confess our sin. Isaiah acknowledged his own sinfulness to God. Now in the Old Testament, uh, God provided atonement by means of animal sacrifices. And here Isaiah's sin is atoned for by a burning coal from the altar. But these things are just symbols pointing forward to the real means of atonement that God provided, which is the death of Jesus, God's only Son, on the cross to propitiate God's wrath. Jesus died as our substitute. He took the punishment of death that should have come to us so that we wouldn't have to die. He paid our penalty. And he paid the penalty not only for us, but also for the sins of all the Old Testament believers like Isaiah, who had trusted in the atonement that God provided for them in the Old Testament. 
after cleansing, commissioning. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Cleansing from sin is not the end of the matter. Having been cleansed and reconciled, we need to ask, what is the purpose of it? Cleansing from sin is for our benefit, of course, but there is more to it than that. So after Isaiah's sin is atoned for, God has a job for him to do. God is looking for someone he can send to speak to the nation. Notice again the hint of the Trinity here. Whom shall I send, singular, and who will go for us, plural? We see in the Old Testament the implicit hints of what becomes explicit in the, Old Test in the New Testament, that God is three in one. Now God cleanses us, not as an end in itself, but in order for us to do his work, to do good works. So it says in Ephesians that we've been saved through faith by grace and it's not by our works. And then in verse 10 it says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isaiah volunteers for God's task. Here I am, send me. He's not reluctant like Moses or Jeremiah. He's been cleansed. He's ready. He's willing to be God's mouthpiece. And notice how appropriate it is that God has cleansed his lips because his job is to use his lips to speak God's word. And how much we all have to learn from Isaiah's readiness to do God's bidding. It wouldn't be an easy task. Aren't we so much more reluctant to put ourselves forward? And I speak for myself too. Isn't it so much... Uh, so typical for us to say, here I am, send him or her. Now, Isaiah's confession, cleansing and commissioning is, in a way, a paradigm for the nation of Israel. It gives us the trajectory for the nation of Israel. And the whole book of Isaiah grapples with this question of how can sinful Israel go to become servant Israel? This is how. Confession of sin cleansing by God's atonement, and finally commissioning for service. So this trajectory of Isaiah is also a rough outline of the book of Isaiah as a whole. So chapters 1 to 39 focus largely on the problem of sinful Israel. It could be put under the heading of a people of unclean lips. Then chapters 40 to 55 in Isaiah speak mainly about God's gracious initiative in rescuing and restoring Israel. He would do this, as it says in Isaiah 52 and 53, through the suffering servant who would atone for the sins of Israel. And you could entitle this section, Your Sin is Atoned For. And finally, chapters 56 to 66 in Isaiah broadly speak of Israel's commissioning to live as God's servant and do righteousness. And you could call this section, Here I am, send me. Now, the, the last um, section in today's chapter is verses 9 to 13. Isaiah's message of judgment for judgment. And I'll clarify what I mean by that. So, what was God's message for the people of Israel? Verse 9. And he said, Go and say to these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, 
but do not perceive. Make the heart... So this verse 9 expresses the content, what Isaiah is to preach to the people, the content of his preaching. Then verse 10 expresses the intended result, the purpose of that preaching. Make the heart of these people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now if you read this carefully, you'll probably go, hang on a minute. What is Isaiah supposed to preach to Israel again? God didn't say to preach, repent of your sin or judgment is coming. Yes, no doubt Isaiah did preach to Israel about their sin and that God's judgment was coming. We saw that in chapter 1. But here God commissions him to preach the oddest message that a prophet would preach. God's message is not, I want you to, be, to repent and be saved, but rather, don't understand the message, don't repent so that you won't be saved. Now, is this simply being ironic? Is God being sarcastic? Could it be that God actually wants the people to understand, turn and be saved, but he's just using reverse psychology? You know, like telling a kid not to do something knowing that once he said that he's going to want to go and do it. Is that what God is doing here? No, I don't think that we should read it as irony, although some commentators do so because it makes them uncomfortable to think that God might want some people not to be saved. Or is it saying that Isaiah should make his preaching so hard to understand, so complicated, so obscure, that people just won't get it? No, that's not the right explanation either. As we read, uh, as we read through the book of Isaiah, for example, in chapter 1, we can see how simple and clear and striking is Isaiah's preaching. God is not asking Isaiah to preach a long-winded, boring sermon full of technical jargon so that nobody can understand. The lack of understanding here is not a lack of understanding at a brain level, but at a heart level. It's not talking about a failure to understand the meaning of the words, but a failure to grasp the spiritual implications, the life implications of the message. God wants Isaiah to tell the people, keep listening to the preaching, but don't grasp its true implications. So it's a message of judgment. God wants their hearts to remain spiritually dead. He wants their ears to remain spiritually deaf and their eyes to remain spiritually blind. Why? So that they won't awaken spiritually so that the scales will not drop from their eyes and they will not repent of their sin and not turn back to God and then be healed of their sin. Now, many commentators and many of us would have trouble with this concept. They say, uh, verses 9 and 10 do not express God's intent. They just express the eventual result of Isaiah's ministry. But it's clear from just reading this passage plainly that it was God's intention for Isaiah's message to achieve a hardening of heart in the people of Israel. It's not only that God knows the ultimate result of Isaiah's ministry, it was his purpose right from the beginning for Isaiah's ministry to achieve a hardening of heart. Now how do we reconcile the idea that God doesn't want some people to be saved with passages in the Bible that say that God wants everybody to be saved. For example, this passage in 1 Timothy, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and could come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, at the end of the day, uh, it is a mystery. Okay, I think it's useful 
for us to think of God's will at two levels. We can distinguish between God's express will and God's secret will. Or theologians call these two levels of God's will, God's preceptive will and his decretive will, or more simply, God's precept and God's decree. Okay, so God's precept is his express command, what he has told us that he wants. But God's commands are not always carried out. So God's precept is not always done. On the other hand, God's decree or is his eternal purpose, what he has foreordained or predestined in his good pleasure to happen. And God's decree is always fulfilled. For example, God's precept or command is, you shall not murder. But we know that many people have disobeyed that command. God's decree is that Jesus should be unjustly killed for our salvation. Both are God's will, his precept and his decree, but in different senses. And so here in Isaiah, at one level, God wants Israel to turn to him and be saved. In fact, he wants the whole world to be saved. It says later on in the book of Isaiah in 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is God's precept, his express will. But in God's inscrutable decree, he wants to harden Israel's heart against him and ripen them for his full judgment upon their sin and rebellion. So on one hand, God wants Israel to repent. On the other hand, he wants their hearts to be hardened. And there is a tension here. Now we don't know why God works the way that he does. We don't need to know, we cannot know. We must be content to leave it a mystery. The Bible says that it's not for us to know the secrets of God's mind. For example, in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So we're not called to understand God's secret will, but to obey his express will. The book of Isaiah constantly emphasizes also that God is far above us and our human minds just cannot fathom God. So in Isaiah 40, it says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who, what, what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Or Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we must humble our minds before God, rather than presume to sit in judgment over his actions. In Isaiah 64 it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And that is the humble attitude that we ought to have. And so the content of Isaiah's message was God's judgment on Israel. The purpose of Isaiah's preaching was to achieve the spiritual conditions of full hardening of heart in Israel so that God could bring down on them the judgment that they deserved. Now we need to be absolutely clear that Israel fully deserved this hardening. They had refused to listen to God again and again. They had persisted in rebellion and idolatry, despite repeated warnings, many prophets. 
And so every time they heard Isaiah preach and ignored his message, their heart was getting harder and harder until the point of no return. Do you know that whenever God's word is preached, it always accomplishes its purpose? So in Isaiah chapter 55 again, it says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is always 100% effective. Sometimes it accomplishes salvation, and sometimes it accomplishes judgment. To some, God's word will bring repentance and salvation. To others, it will bring hardening and judgment. And whenever the gospel is preached, God uses it to bring some to salvation and to harden the rest to judgment. How do you respond when you hear God's word preached? Do you know that every time you hear God's call for you to repent and you choose to set it aside or ignore it or postpone it or laugh at it, your heart is getting that bit harder. Each time you reject God's word, you numb your heart more and make it less responsive to God's word and it gets easier for you next time to say no to God. So take heed and be careful how you hear. As Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearing always comes with responsibility to respond. Now there's much more I could talk about. I wish we had time to reflect based on this passage what it means to have an effective ministry. Was Isaiah's ministry effective? Was it successful? How do you measure ministry success? We don't have time to go into that. I also wish we had time to explore with you how Jesus quotes from this very passage in Isaiah to explain why he speaks in parables, or how John quotes in his gospel to explain Israel's unbelief, or how the book of Acts ends with Paul also quoting from this passage. But we have to move on. So in, I'll move on to verse 11. Then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? And God said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so finally here, Isaiah asks God, How long, O Lord? How long do I have to keep preaching this message of judgment? How long is this hardening going to last? And God's answer is, until everything is destroyed and the land lies waste. Until the people of Israel have been exiled far away from the land. And even then, there will be more punishment on those who are left behind. That is how severe the judgment will be on Israel. But there is a glimmer of hope right at the very end. Even after the cycles of judgment, by God's mercy, a stump will be left of Israel, a remnant. And this remnant is referred to as the Holy Seed. God will leave behind a nucleus, a righteous remnant from which he will begin the restoration of Israel. 
And God willing, we will look at this glimmer of hope more fully in my next sermons in, uh, in Isaiah. So as we conclude today, I want to emphasize the strong focus on God's sovereignty in today's passage. God is supremely in charge of everything. He is in control of every small detail of our lives and our deaths. He brings well-being and calamity, blessing and judgment. For those of us who submit to his lordship and confess our sins and place our trust before him, we have nothing to fear in this world and beyond. Nothing can happen to us which takes God by surprise or nothing is outside God's loving control. And we can rest in his sovereignty and look forward to heaven. But for those who harden their hearts against God and who shut their ears and their eyes to God's word, God remains in control to bring judgment and eternal punishment. So if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I urge you today to do that and escape the judgment of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Grant that we, your people, may see you for who you are, trust you, and magnify your holy name in our hearts and minds, and with our lips and our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.